If Washington wants to get right with voters, it has to start listening to them. Welcome to Beyond the Bubble. It's the first 2017 election week in America, and I'm Kristen Roberts, Washington editor for the 30 news organizations that together make McClatchy. Every week, we call the senior correspondents who live and work in political battleground states and ask them to open their notebooks for you to tell you about how voters are reacting to Donald Trump, the GOP Congress, and the actions coming out of this Capitol that affect your lives. On the hook this week are Patty Mazze of the Miami Herald and Brian Lowry of the Kansas City Star. Hi, Patty Mazay. How you doing? Good morning, Kristen. Are you having a cortadito? Oh, my God. I should have had a cortadito. Instead, I had a disgusting American coffee that is keeping me going. Excellent. What do you want to talk about today? I want to start with Syria, President Trump's actions and how voters are receiving it, reacting to it, and what it means for the races coming up. I want to talk about the upcoming elections, not in 2018, but this week and next week in Kansas and Georgia. And then we get to our favorite part, the lightning round, where every person on our panel gets to pick one political mover and shaker who's doing something relevant to their next election. Let's roll. Before we start, let me just say thank you for all the great feedback we're getting. Please keep sending your questions and your ideas and tell us what's happening in your state. Email us at btb at That's btb as in beyond the bubble. Let's get started. January 20th. The day the people became the rulers of this nation again. Our ideals and fundamental values are being attacked. Do we retreat or do we fight? I say we fight. He heard those voices that were out there that other people weren't hearing, and he just earned a mandate. It is time for Democrats to grow a backbone and get out there and fight. The American people would like to try something new. We would like to see the country go in a different direction to change the course for America. He doesn't take this presidency seriously enough. So to all Americans, hear these words. You will never be ignored again. Before we start the show, we've got some really exciting news. For the Panama Papers. On Monday, it was announced by the Pulitzer Board that McClatchy's Washington Bureau with the Miami Herald and the ICIJ won a Pulitzer Prize. McClatchy and the Miami Herald. For their work on the Panama Papers. And with me right now is Tim Johnson, a Washington, D.C. correspondent here at McClatchy. How excited are you? (laughs) Pretty darn excited. Tell us about the project and why it was so important. Well, the project involved looking through an unbelievable quantity of papers that leaked from a Panama law firm that showed an underground world of financial skullduggery by the rich. Leaders, families of leaders around the world, And we took a slice of that and just spent a year on it. An entire year on a deep dive that uncovered, give us a taste. (laughs) I mean, to be candid, we didn't know whether it was gonna be worthwhile. And I gotta say, I had deep doubts about it in the first few months because, you know, one is swimming in an ocean of stuff and it's really hard to have context about what it all means. We did our best and it took nine months before The project was published by the whole consortium, all the media uh, worldwide. And, you know, within two days, the prime minister of Iceland fell. David Cameron in Britain had to come on and explain why his father had an offshore corporation. The prime minister of Pakistan goes on a nightly primetime newscast to explain why his children have offshore corporations and properties around the world. And we realized that this was 
going to be of a significance that was really going to shake the world. This project was significant for two reasons, really. One, for the sheer quantity of revelation that came out of the documents that were leaked and that were studied, but also for the nature of the project itself. It was an enormous undertaking by hundreds of people. It was, and it was really unique because everybody was to operate on the premise of secrecy, yet collaborating in a very tight way with people often whose languages were not English, but whose expertise in local situations was fundamental. So I dealt a lot with a couple of Mexican reporters for several months, and we'd meet and, you know, pour over things and ask, you know, ourselves what this meant and that meant. Dealt a lot with Ecuadorian journalists, also with a Czech reporter, Kevin Hall, my colleague. Boy, he was involved with people looking at the investigation around Putin's inner circle and We were very generous in finding things that weren't necessarily of interest to us, but would be of interest to people in the consortium all over the world. It's really exciting. Listen, congratulations. Thank you. All right. Welcome back to Brian Lowry out there in Kansas City. How you doing, man? Thanks for having me. I'm not fully caffeinated, but I will be taking sips of this throughout. So (laughs) let me... uh... Ambient sound. Take a a swig. There you go. Now I'm really happy to be here. All right. And Alex Rorty, a very special welcome to you. It's your first time on the show. You are a political correspondent who covers the Democrats for us. It's uh, it's great to be here, guys. I was preparing all yesterday. I'm ready. He got to watch the Ron Estes Swamp ad I, yesterday. <laughs> I got a like, message back from him immediately. Oh, my God. I, I just couldn't believe how bad that ad was. I guess we could talk about that on the podcast if we want. Well, you're on the podcast right now. So, so <laughs> We'll get to it. We'll get to it when we talk about Democrats. First segment. Trump's bombing of an airfield last week represented, frankly, a pretty dramatic escalation of the U.S. role in Syria's civil war. This is a theater that now involves Russia and Iran on one side, Saudi Arabia and Turkey on the other. This isn't the first time the public has been asked to consider engaging in another Middle Eastern war zone. But pollsters went out into the field over the weekend. Alex, what did they find? Obviously, this is a new action, so we don't have much polling data. But what we do have shows some tepid support for Trump's military action. But I think just as interestingly, a lot of hesitation in the public for any further action. And in particular, I think uh, when you start talking about ground troops, if it reaches that situation, almost no support. You know, it was interesting. The voters in the CBS poll uh, just released Monday morning showed uh, 54 percent of people were uneasy with Trump's approach, even if they approved of the airstrike itself. And then you have seven in 10 Americans. This is the real number to take away. Seven in 10 Americans say that President Trump has to go to Congress before he does anything further in Syria, which is a very strong support um, and really is helpful to the Democrats who have been arguing this really in the wake of these airstrikes. Listen here for a second to Adam Schiff, who is essentially demanding that the president go to Congress for authorization of further military action. Uh, I don't think, frankly, Obama should have put troops back in Iraq or in Syria without congressional approval. I don't think this president should have taken that strike without congressional approval. Uh, I also think that... Doesn't he have the inherent right under the Constitution to do that? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. Now, uh, And look, that was for military involvement. We're not even talking about ground troops. I mean, the support for ground troops, there was a McClatchy poll taken around the same time. It showed it at about 13 percent. 13. 13 percent. 
Um, so you're at 13%. That means no major group of people was interested in a ground war in Syria. Those are pretty stunning results. Just for, you know, in these polarized times to find 13% support for anything is pretty astonishing. Is that what you're seeing out there, Brian? Yeah, I, I don't think you see a lot of support for ground troops. In fact, uh, what we'll talk about later is we have a congressional race, but both candidates made sure to say they supported the airstrikes, but also gave the asterisk that we're not talking about ground troops here. Uh, it's it's also interesting that in 2013, basically every Republican member of the Kansas or Missouri delegation made it very clear that they did not support President Obama taking military action against Syria. Three years later, a change in the presidency, their statements were strikingly different. They all applauded President Trump's action. And so is that because we've had three years of escalation or is that because we have a president of a different party in the White House. What was the reaction in Florida, Patty? It was the same thing. I mean, I think even uh, Democrats got behind the airstrike in Syria this time around. It might be the first time we could have a headline saying Debbie Wasserman Schultz praises something done by the Trump administration. Um, but <laughs> be the last time, too. They also warned, uh, the Democrats did, that they wanted congressional authorization moving forward. On the Republican side, Marco Rubio was the noteworthy uh, change here because in 2013 he voted against authorizing President Obama to send missiles into Syria. While I have long argued forcefully for engagement in empowering the Syrian people, I have never supported the use of military force, of U.S. military force in this conflict, and I still don't. This time he was supportive of the airstrike and actually called out Secretary of State Rex Tillerson over the weekend for not taking a more robust position against Assad because Rubio believes you need to get rid of Assad. And Tillerson has espoused kind of the Trump campaign view, which is ISIS is the chief target. I would say that three and a half years is a long time. Here's a lot of things that have changed. Here's the first thing that's changed from 2013 to now. The Russians are now there. Assad was losing back in 2013. If we had armed non-jihadist elements on the ground, they could have overthrown him. That's what I thought was the better approach at the time. The second is that I don't remember any voter during the campaign disagreeing with Trump on that, and I have not heard of any activist over the weekend when I reached out to them disagree that that ISIS should still be the priority. This is precisely what Donald Trump said he was not going to do. One day we're bombing Libya and getting rid of a dictator to foster democracy for civilians. The next day we're watching the same civilians suffer while that country falls and absolutely falls apart. The legacy of the Obama-Clinton interventions will be weakness, confusion, and disarray. Do you think voters care about that, or do they see a chemical weapons attack on the part of the government in Syria as the window that allows Donald Trump to break a campaign promise? I think he's on a short leash. I, mean, I, I think, look, the images were so horrifying, and reportedly this is the reason that President Trump did this in the first place. But this man's whole campaign was America first. It was about not being the world's policeman. It was about rebuilding America. And so I think the question is here, does he continue to escalate? Does he continue to become involved in Syria? And if he does that, I, I think there's a lot of reason to think that his base won't be supportive of that. Patty, what about the America first, quote unquote, America first voters in Florida? How are they reacting to this? Well, what's interesting about America first is I think that also meant in the eyes and ears of many voters, 
different from Obama. And this is different from Obama. There was a chemical attack and we took a different route than the Obama administration did. So I think that is something that voters can be persuaded to hear as, you know, what we promised was that we were going to be different. And we are. One thing that has struck me is that, you know, I reached out to a progressive activist in Kansas, which, yes, they do actually exist in Kansas. <laughs> Small numbers. Really and I wanted to see, are we going to see an anti-war movement at all? from the progressive community. And he told me there's actually a split in the progressive community that uh, he posted on Facebook that he actually supported it because of the brutality of the Assad regime, which sparked off a fight among progressives in Kansas, a small little insular group. I think everyone is tiptoeing here very carefully. When you look at the statements from lawmakers, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, Claire McCaskill, she supported the airstrikes, but she also made it clear that she wants some sort of plan. I think people are very hesitant to fully commit to a war, but I also don't think anyone is okay with giving the Assad regime a pass anymore. The politics of this certainly are tricky, Alex. As you think Mm -hmm. about the 2018 congressional elections, how does it play out? Will it play out? Is it just too early in 2017 for it to matter at that point? I think you already see Democrats in a difficult spot over these airstrikes. I mean, to, to build on what Brian said, No one wants to say, hey, you can't respond to a a horrific chemical weapons attack, but they will just as quickly say, you know what, but we are worried about President Trump. We're worried what he's going to do next. Whenever you, you process how progressives see the politics of the moment or what President Trump is doing, you just have to remember they consider him in many ways illegitimate. They consider him something close to a strongman, or at least the closest we've seen in this country. And from that perspective, it's hard to think that anything he does is either legitimate or good. And so it is in in this case. You know, I I was on a call that MoveOn.org, the sort of longtime liberal advocacy group, hosts every Sunday night. And they had uh, Congresswoman Barbara Lee on there. And she showed none of the, the sort of hesitation that other Democratic politicians have. She said that she is worried that President Trump is going to drag us into war, that this was an illegal action, that he needs to come to Congress to justify it. And you you see that tension, I think, with a lot of Democratic politicians who they don't want to oppose Donald Trump because it looks like in some ways you're you're almost siding with the chemical weapons attacks, but you have a base that just doesn't accept anything he does as legitimate. Here's my question from the outside looking in. I mean, does Congress ever actually want to take these votes? Because uh, politically, it's impossible. I mean, it's going to be used against them no matter what, right? So they all say they want to be consulted on the use of military force, but they don't really, right? Until they are. Until they are. You'll remember Barack Obama didn't want to take the hard decision on his own on whether to go after Syrian forces after the first chemical weapons attack. And so he went to Congress and Congress balked. What do you mean you're coming to us? You've been taking military action without authorization for years. And they didn't want to play ball. Democrats would like this issue to go away as fast as they possibly can. It puts them in a difficult spot between President Trump and their base. I think they would just be happy as to not have to consider that vote and for Syria to fade into the news. And we can, you know, for their perspective, start talking about the Republican failure to pass a health care bill again or sort of failed, stalled efforts to have an infrastructure tax reform package. They want to get back to that agenda. They really don't want to be talking about Syria. Let's get to the next segment because Democrats are starting to see a chance I think that's really surprising. So close to the 2016 debacle. 
Over the next week, we'll have two special elections that Democrats are looking to as a test of their strength in this new Trump era. This week, it's Kansas. Next week, it's Georgia. So, Alex, please set the scene for us here. Are Republicans deliberately lowering expectations of their wins just to make it look like an incredible victory? Well, the the interesting thing is there's a sort of jujitsu going on behind the scenes, at least in Washington. It was actually Democrats who in some ways are trying to lower expectations for these races because they Oh, they're red districts and, you know, how the media likes to hype these things and we don't have to win these races to prove that we're back when it comes to the 2018 midterm elections. But, you know, there is some real excitement among Democrats and I think progressives in particular that they get a chance earlier than anyone expected to really strike back at President Trump and show that the Democratic Party is still a politically viable party nationally. And we've been talking for months about this special House race in Georgia The name John Ossoff will be familiar to many of the listeners of this podcast, the sort of liberal golden child who has raised an amazing $8 million, and we can talk more about that. I mean, New York Magazine's profile, New York Times profile, he's got profiles everywhere. I don't think the race anyone saw coming um, is this race in Kansas, basically a house district that includes Wichita. And just in the last week, it went from a race that I don't think anyone in Washington was talking about to suddenly a race that everyone was talking about. The NRCC is making last-minute TV ads. Mike Pence is recording calls. Ted Cruz is is sweeping in. Ted Cruz, of all people, to do a get-out-the-vote effort. And there is this real concern that the Republican, if he's not going to lose, is only going to win by a much smaller amount than he should be in a red district like this, and that that's going to cause a real panic for Republicans in Washington. Brian, this is your turf. Jump in here, man. Why are Republicans dumping money into the race to replace Pompeo? Well, I think Alex nailed it, which is that it's more of a concern that Ron Estes will only win, the state treasurer, two-time elected state treasurer, will only win against a political newcomer by a slim margin. And they're trying to make sure they get the double digits. If Democrats did win this district, which I'm going to preface, I don't think it's going to happen, this would be an epic upset. This is Charles Koch's home district. He lives there. This is Trump's CIA director's old district. It hasn't been held by a Democrat in 22 years. It's the equivalent of a number 16 seed in the NCAA tournament beating a number one seed. One thing that's going on here that's interesting When you talk to Republicans, they're just very dissatisfied with the campaign that Ron Estes has run. It hasn't been active. He hasn't gone to a lot of events. He's made a lot of bizarre choices like this swamp ad where he's just standing in a swamp talking about how we need to drain the swamp more. I'm Ron Estes. After eight years of Obama, America is weaker and the swamp is deeper than we thought. And now the liberal activists are trying to steal this election by supporting a Bernie Sanders-backed lawyer because they know he will vote the way Pelosi tells him to. It's honestly one of the worst ads I've ever seen. Just, just if I could interject for a second, Brian sent it to me yesterday. And I it just everything about it is. is and not the good. Democrats have actually turned it into a mailer, where they have this image of Ron Estes in a swamp, and they have an alligator with Sam Brownback's face on it. Now, if this does become a five-point race and the Republicans still win, you're going to see a lot of heartburn from progressives that the DCCC, the state party, didn't get more involved here. The state party denied a request for a couple thousand dollars for mailers from James Thompson, the Democratic candidate. My understanding from Democratic sources is the DCCC has looked at the numbers. They don't think it's a competitive race, so they're not getting in it. But I've heard people on both sides tell me they think it's a maybe 10-point margin. And if it is close, maybe it will end up being a missed opportunity for Democrats. 
Why did Dietrich deny it, Alex? It's what I talked about just a few minutes ago, that they see all these red districts and they just don't think that the Democrat can actually win. And they're worried about, look, the DCCC does not have much money. And it is something that uh, we reported on last week. The NRCC is rolling in cash right now. They raised $15 million last month. That is an awful lot of money for a committee, particularly in, in an off year, in March of an off year. So they have the cash to spend. You know, Democrats are trying to be smart about where their resources, and they're just, you know, look, their objective is to win the majority plain and simple. And they don't think that the majority runs through Kansas. And frankly, they don't really think the majority runs through the Georgia 6 race either. I should say, I mean, the DCCC is spending some money in Georgia on field staffers that they've had there for at least a few months. If there's going to be a scapegoat here for Democrats, it is going to be the Kansas State uh, Democratic Party, like Brian pointed out, not wanting to spend money on something simple like mailers. You know, just like you see at a legislative level, there is this split politically between progressives and sort of establishment Democrats, you know, wondering, why aren't we on the same page? Why aren't you fighting Trump everywhere you can? And the DCCC is trying to say, hey, look, guys, we're trying to be smart about this. We only have so many resources. Democrats need to start figuring out maybe not how to win red districts, but how to win over some voters in these places. I mean, the debate in the Florida Democratic Party, which is trying to rebuild itself here, uh, it's got a new chairman, is what do we do about red counties? Because, you know, they went gangbusters in blue counties in Florida, frankly, the presidential election, but they couldn't figure out rural and just exurban area. So I think the lessons from Kansas and Georgia, even if these aren't wins for the Democrats, like we don't think will happen, will be, did we persuade voters? Did we learn a way to reach them in the Trump era? And also, I I think I'm going to add that reading profiles in the New York Times and New York York Magazine of a Democrat, uh, at least outside of Washington, makes me think like, oh, yeah, they don't really have a chance. Don't stand a chance (laughs) after getting profiled by the New York Times, man. I mean, considering that they missed, you know, Dave Brad in the Eric Cantor, like the infamous race. Like, I'm just not sure how trustworthy that is. I think it, it's looking for uh, stories in an off year. I will say that if the Democrats do well in this Kansas race, a lot of people are going to look at it as a way to take a measurement of how Trump is doing in the heartland. And I'd caution against that. What the Democrats have done in this race is they've made it a very local message. They've tried to make this a race about Sam Brownback, which the Democrats actually gained state legislative seats by tying incumbent Republicans to Sam Brownback. Every attack from the Thompson campaign is about him being Sam Brownback's handpicked candidate. They don't mention Donald Trump. They're not trying to tie him to Trump. They're making this a referendum on Sam Brownback. I love that, Brian, because it's exactly what this show is about. Because when you talk to people in Washington, they talk about it being a referendum on Trump. But when you're sitting outside of the city, you're seeing what's for real. And you're saying that it's not. If if you pay attention to Kansas politics, Brownback has struggled with low popularity ratings for maybe two years, just barely won his reelection and then saw a lot of his allies lose to moderate Republicans and Democrats this past election. He's really had his power in the legislature diminished. And so the Democrats are just going with this easy strategy of tying the state treasurer to the governor. And that's pretty much it. And maybe that's the smart strategy moving forward in other places, too. Forget making every election national, you know, look at what's working or not working in your specific state or community. Expect that argument to be one that Republicans make a lot if, in fact, the GOP does stumble in this Kansas race. And this is what sort of progressive strategists think about this, is that the effect here of these special election races is what do Republican members of Congress feel about Trump? 
even if it's not about Trump, I mean, perception is is reality in politics a lot of times. And if Republican members start to think that they're going to get voted out of office because of Donald Trump, their behavior is going to change in a big way. And that's like the white whale for a lot of progressives and, and Democratic strategists, too, that these Republican lawmakers can get spooked. And that can affect everything from uh, the tax reform plan to if health care comes up again. And frankly, even the probes into possible cooperation between Russia and members of President Trump's campaign team. That's really why these special elections might not matter, because, look, the midterm elections are still 18 months away. How does Capitol Hill react to these things? So if, if Republicans stumble in Kansas, if John Ossoff somehow wins in Georgia, you could see a huge change in attitude among members on Capitol Hill, even if the voters themselves haven't changed all that much. Alex Rorty, you are a value add. Yes, <laughs> it's <you>. great. <laughs> all right. Time for our favorite part. It's the lightning round. Each person identifies one politician who's making moves relevant to the next election, whether next week, 18 or 2020. And because you are new, you get to go first, Alex. Wonderful. So my person to watch is Tulsi Gabbard. She is a congresswoman from Hawaii, and she has what I think can fairly be described as a very strange relationship with Syria and Bashar al-Assad. She had made a somewhat mysterious trip earlier this year to meet with him. The sort of nature of that trip is really unclear even now. But just in the last few days, she's expressed doubt that Syria used chemical weapons on its own people, which is a claim that almost nobody believes right now. Whether the president or the Pentagon or the secretary of state says that they have the evidence, the fact remains that they have not brought that evidence before Congress. They have not brought that evidence before the American people, and they have not sought authorization from Congress to launch this military attack on another country. And and I think what was a sort of issue that was boiling for a lot of Democratic leaders has now burst into the open. Howard Dean, the former DNC chairman, the former presidential candidate, said that she needs to be primary, that she does not deserve a place in Congress. This is a big issue. It's a big issue not only because we could have a primary, but this is going to be a headache for Democratic leaders in Capitol Hill that they have one of their own effectively defending this ruthless dictator. This is a, an issue that's not going to go away anytime soon. Patty. I am going with Chris King, who is a new Democratic candidate for governor in Florida. He is a first-time candidate, a housing investor from Orlando who's got a bunch of former Obama aides running his campaign. He's already put a million dollars of his own money into the race and raised another half million. For the system to change, for the walls of power uh, in Tallahassee that are so entrenched to come down. We need a whole new generation of people who is rising up and saying, how are we gonna care for people better? How are we gonna help Floridians? I think he's going to be one of these test cases for can somebody with no political experience kind of follow the Trump model and get elected or the Rick Scott model uh, in Florida, as it's known. Orlando also seems to be the hotbed now for Democrats uh, in Florida. It's home to a lot of the more exciting candidates. There was a reflection of the demographics in the state. And I think we're going to see whether King sticks it out or whether it's just the fact that he's got consultants who, uh, who are looking for a candidate or whether he's the real thing. And so we've got our eye on him. He's a 38-year-old uh, telegenic kind of a contender, and we'll see where that goes. Brian. I'm going to go with a Missouri politician. I know we have an election in Kansas this week, but I'm looking ahead to 2018. I'm going with Ann Wagner, a member of the U.S. House, who we are expecting to maybe sometime in the near future announce that she's going to run against Claire McCaskill for the U.S. Senate seat. Members of Congress and this administration understand that children are a blessing, that abortion is not 
health care. It kills children and it hurts women. She's been taking some shots at McCaskill over the Gorsuch filibuster. She is the candidate who Missouri Democrats are most closely watching and, you know, trying to get their attack plans ready. So I'm expecting her to hit the ground running soon on a 2018 campaign. My turn, Mac Thornberry. He is a Republican from Texas. He is also the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee. Now, in 2013, when the question of intervening in Syria was posed, he said, Some people seem to have the idea that you can just uh, bomb these places that have chemical weapons, and, and, and that simply uh, is, is not a very good option. So th- that's the problem with Syria. At this point, there are no good options. And- but in 2017, he says, Well, I hope the result of this strike is to deter Assad from using chemical weapons to kill more innocent people. That was the clear message that no longer is the United States and the international community going to stand by and let him commit these atrocities. Different administration, different kind of election calendar. All right, guys, that's it for us. Really good show today. Alex Rorty, thank you for joining us, and I hope you will come back. Absolutely. Brian Lowry, it was so nice to hear your voice. Thanks for having me. Have a great week. Patty Mazze, talk to you next week. Fabulous team, as always. Thank you to our executive producer, Davin Coburn, and thank you to our listeners. We love doing this show, and we want you to help us make it better. So please send your questions and your comments and your criticisms to btb at mcclatchy.com. Give us some ideas. Tell us what you're seeing in your battleground state. And also, please go to iTunes or Stitcher or whatever podcast app you use and leave us a review. Talk to you next week. Brian, where does this Estes ad rank in the pantheon of strange campaign ads? <laughs> in terms of Kansas history, it's at the top. In terms of all time, um, I defer to Alex on that. Alex, it's not like the demon sheep. You remember the, was it oh, the I demon the, sheep? Oh, I remember the demon sheep. Fred Davis did that. That's right. Tom Campbell, is he what he tells us? Or is he what he's become over the years? A wolf in sheep's clothing. Was that Carly Fiorina? Yes. Yeah. This is an Estes problem that's beyond just the ad. Like, he has mailers that are for him that look like they are attack mailers. He was standing in a swamp and saying, I need need your help help draining this swamp swamp while alligators and snakes swam around him. Can I just say the fact that the swamp ad is not in Florida is pretty fabulous. I don't even know where they found that swamp in Kansas, to be honest. I don't know if they had to go to, like, Missouri or Arkansas. (laughs) 